Let's Roll. This is Counter Charge, your podcast for ranks, flanks, and kings of war. as they delve into the world of Panathor and bring you worldwide coverage of all things Kings of War. Welcome to Countercharge. I'm Keith Conroy. I'm Kyle Dinolord Pool. I'm Adam Ballard. And I'm Rafa Nuff, and we're back again for the second episode of this scenario extravaganza where we're pulling in U.S. Masters. First one, we had Alex Chavez, just one master. Now we've got two. We've got Adam Ballard and Keith Conroy. Welcome to the show, guys. Only thing you can do now is pull in the other three masters for the uh, last episode, right? Well, <laughs> for sure, we're going to get Eric on at Masters. We're going to record that live at U.S. Masters coming up this weekend. I guess I need to look and see who else is going to be there. No Brad, no Zorro from uh, from a list I have. So. Well, it'll be fun. It'll be a fun time. But before we get to that great discussion about the next batch of scenarios, let's just chat about hobby updates. Uh, Keith, am I hearing right? You're, you're, you're playing dwarves now because herd wasn't good enough. Or what's, <laughs> what's, the, what's the story here? Um, wow. So I've had that dwarf army since that was my old Warhammer, right? Every, everyone's got their leftover army from Warhammer fantasy days. So I used that for about a year. I kind of did the Alex Chavez approach of, um, uh, trying an army out for a year. So I had kind of like an MSU build and it was good. It was a lot of fun. Used a lot of flame belchers. Um, then going back to herd, and then once I someday finish these night stalkers, uh, they'll see the table hopefully next year. Um, maybe, maybe in November, depending if I can bring them to Nerdhammer or not. But crossroads will be herd, and then maybe night stalkers for the remainder of the year. I recently had a, a local player said, hey, I really want to play herd, and I felt bad because I was like, Okay, <laughs> you want to play herd in the southeast? I was like, Okay. And I was trying to like tell him nicely, like you can win with them, mm-hmm. but it's hard to make mistakes, right? And uh, I don't know. I, I felt bad because I kind of think I may have discouraged him, and he ended up <laughs> playing something else. Well, you can take three tree herders and still call it a herd list, so you're fine. Earth elementals now they're in the mm-hmm. herd list. So oh yeah, <laughs> yep. <laughs> you can make defense six if you want to. They got a glade walker druid too. Mm-hmm. Just heal, heal, heal. Well, I'm not even going to ask Adam if he's been painting because we already know the answer to that. And I'm not <laughs> no. even really going to bother asking Kyle because I know he is painting. I know he's been knocking out goblins. For somebody that owns as many goblins, I just I just shake my head. Like, does it need more goblins? He's got a sickness, really. <laughs> From my understanding, he wants a cohesive army. Um, and then all I keep hearing is excuses on how he's going to be rushing that army and it's not going to be what he wanted anyway by the time Masters is here. <laughs> If you're making compromises and the end result isn't to your standard, then what's the point of even doing that? <laughs> Pride. Should have just taken some dinos and put them in there. Keep it up, Adam, and I'll bring the dinos. There we go. Let's dive into our main topic. We're back again to do the second episode in our series on scenarios. We are handpicking kind of the, the people that we think are the best minds for these scenarios. First person that came to mind when we're talking about movement you know, and, and being able to push your opponents around uh, was Keith. So, Keith, we're really glad to have you join us on this episode. Well, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Um, you guys have been putting out some incredible content, and it's crazy to think that we don't even have the Masters content out, you know. And so there's going to be a lot of good stuff coming up for the rest of the summer. 
And obviously, we've got all the stuff with uh, Matt and, and Grant's live streams, which will be amazing. So it's going to be a hell of a show. Sad you can't join us. But there's next year. There's next year. Yep. Definitely be at that one. That's for sure. In this episode, we're going to tackle scenarios that are more movement-based. For us, that's loot. That's push. That's invade, which is the classic movement one, and, and, and plunder. So those are the four we're going to tackle tonight. Before we get into like the specific nitty-gritty, I, I figured it's probably important for us to chat about generally why these are tied together. What makes them similar? What separates these in my mind is that these are scenarios that you can win more so by preventing your opponent from winning. Like You can almost think of them as defensive scenarios. So unlike with maybe the exception of control, the scenarios covered in the previous episode, you also don't really need to win the center. So by movement-based scenarios, you can look at these as having a big advantage to alpha strike movement-based lists and also having specific units that can block or play spoiler to your opponent's units as a way to prevent them from either getting unit strength or getting tokens across the board and preventing them from winning. So this separates them from the rest of them because it's not just about how you're playing. It's also how you're affecting your opponent's play. I look at movement missions as an archetype where scout allows you to start playing the mission before the game starts. And obviously that works on anything, right? Whether you're picking up a token or you're trying to get in a dominate early. But in the movement missions especially, it's where the scout keyword allows you as a general to tell your opponent, hey, I've already won the game unless you respond. Like, at deployment, I win. Unless you do something about it. So for me, the movement missions all fall into a category of scout is disproportionately impactful. And that's how I think about them. Uh, those are all great points. And I I also look at these movement missions uh, from a more defensive army perspective. More of those, you know, the dwarves, the EOD, the the less mobile unit armies. Um, they don't they don't look at these scenarios and say that that's a losing scenario necessarily. They just uh, have to play towards these scenarios much earlier than other scenarios. Um, because they're more restricted than those alpha strikes and those scouting type units, um, they they need to start uh, that invade push uh, that you know push towards the loot tokens a turn or two earlier than other units. So they're on the back foot, but uh, not out of the game. And uh, with that logic, don't put your unit strength behind terrain and then expect it to get across the table. Nothing like a hindered dwarf horde <laughs> for three turns. Yep. I same thing. It was uh Orktown GT against Corey Reynolds, and I could not get a horde of shield breakers across the woods in time. And then his bind screech just ran off with the token and that was that. Yep. Definitely one of those mistakes you make once and then you try never to make again. Well, is there anything else about these scenarios that somebody wants to bring up about how they're different from, you know, obviously the four that we've already talked about or the ones we haven't talked about, like kill. I find that in my experience playing these scenarios, they lead to the most sneaky wins. So these scenarios especially are one of those like, I thought I was winning up until turn five, and then I looked and, oh, actually, he has more unit strength across. Or if I wanted to try to charge this unit, I have to go back across the line and I lose. Um, So these scenarios specifically um, are separate and different from the other ones because... 
Um, it requires the most thought. It requires like a moment during turns four or five where you kind of sit back and think, okay, what's my plan? What's going on? Doing the math in your head. And we'll get to that later about strategies for the scenarios. But these are the ones where you feel like you can kill the entire army, but you can still lose the scenario pretty handedly. And all uh, most of these scenarios involve a loot counter, you know, loot, plunder, push. Uh, the only one that's not there is invade. But uh, so all three of those, it, it's a pretty unique interaction where, you know, units speed changes and they're uh, not nimble anymore. And if it's a shambling unit that's picking it up, they're even more hindered, uh, restricted because they're still shambling, but they can't be surged. So you're just stuck with the flat five-inch movements. I would say surge is less good in movement than control. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So so it's uh, overcoming you know, those obstacles, no matter what army you have, the, those loot counters really restrict what you can and can't do after they're picked up. And taking that into account, these are the most complex of the scenarios, too, because you're not only looking at things like unit strength, but also variable points, right? It's one point if it's on my side of the board, it's two if it's on yours. So some of these can get really tricky, especially if you have three minutes left on your clock and you just rolled a turn seven and you need to make choices fast. Having a lot of experience both with your list and with these scenarios will definitely help for new players. Well, let's talk about the purpose of these scenarios. You know, like, how do you win them? So how do you win these? Um, First off, and I know that um, Alex and Kyle touched upon this um, in the last episode, um, don't get greedy and don't try immediately to go for max wins. Have a plan of how are you going to get four points? How are you going to get more unit strength first, right? And set yourself up for that success. And then as the game goes on and as, you know, dice do their bell curve thing and things go your way or not your way, then you can try to get greedy later on once you've already secured the win. But get the win first in scenario, then see about going thing for things like extra points. Um, at the end of each of your turns, you know, and especially during your opponent's turn when you're no longer on the count or on the clock, count up your unit strength, count up the points, so you know where you stand going into each round. I think that's important because especially if you're playing a grind style list or something that you don't have the option of redeploying, you want to plan ahead in advance, right? Like if I'm going to get this horde across the table, I'm not going to have the movement to go back to fight something else or to turn a corner or contribute on another flank like it's already committed by the time that I've placed it. Um, so planning ahead is also something really important and for winning these, especially in fade and push. Yeah, and to kind of piggyback on that, uh, identify the units in your army that are going to be most useful in that scenario and uh, you know protect them a- as needed. So an example of that, if you're playing invade, um, you know, I'm, I'm going to use my EOD as an example. I have uh, a lot of very valuable one-unit strength-type units in, like Shobik or Bone Giants or Undead Worms, um, but they're only one-unit strength. So, uh, and then I have this, you know, 105-point Skeleton Spearman Regiment that's worth three-unit strength. So that 105 points is the value of all three of those other units that I just described. So... It's more valuable to me to use those uh, lower unit strength units to protect and deliver the higher unit strength units to where I need them to be 
uh, and to potentially lose those other those one unit strength pieces um, in order to get to where I want to go. So uh, have a plan, execute the plan, identify the units that are going to get you that win. The last overall thought about how to win it is in the same token as what Adam's talking about, your lower unit strength pieces or your utility pieces, as you're reaching the end of the game, the dream is that you can flex position them so they're on a scoring side, but they're facing your own side because maybe your opponent's only option is to double time his horde across the board and he has to give you a rear charge or a flank charge. But if he doesn't do it, he loses anyways. So sometimes it's worth the risk to trade one point dragon for a three point horde or a, a four point horde or a three point regiment. So the as you move into the end, those utility pieces, if they're still alive, bonus points, and if you can get them to where they're threatening to score and counter score, it's just a bad day for your opponent, right? We always talk about how many questions can you ask? Well, if I tell my opponent, I'm willing to sacrifice one dragon to get rid of three of your unit strength, that's a net two win. But if you don't position it correctly, mm-hmm. if you don't think about it correctly, you're just giving that up. Like, if, just ask the question. You don't even have to take it, but ask the question. Make them burn the clock. Make them take a more cautious play. We'll say thematically and for narrative play, these are the most fun scenarios. Like, oftentimes, at least once a GT, you'll have that one unit holding all the tokens, you know, throwing everything that you have in the way as, like, the enemy advances towards you, like, hoping that there's no turn seven. Uh, when I played Adam at US Masters, that was Moon Pie holding all the tokens. I'm like, oh god, don't go to the next turn. And it did. And he killed Moon Pie uh, with a vengeance and got all the tokens. But it can lead to some really fun um, thematic last stands, you know, if you will. In that case, everything is chaff while you're holding the tokens and going for the win. I think the only other thing with movement that makes them harder is I think movement's the hardest of the categories to recover from. Like if we get into the kill or the funny missions, you can shoot your way into a victory or you can get some boxcars into a victory with dominate, right? Maybe you can just pile in and hope you break. But in movement, especially like we talked about, if, if you just fall behind early, there's physically not enough game time to recover. What other tips do you guys have for playing these scenarios? I'll go ahead and start that. So um, I would say one of the big uh, tips is to... Um, look at or be aware of the scenarios when you're in the list building process. Um, so I, I'm always a fan of having a diversity in your list and not necessarily uh, going all into one thing, no matter what that is shooting or defense six or what, what have you. Um, if you have a good diversity, uh, you're naturally going to have more tools to play uh, various uh, scenarios. So in this particular uh, grouping of scenarios, you know, we're, we're looking at like speed is going to be uh, very useful. So if you have, you know, a speed 10 flying unit uh, with invade or to jump on a loot token on the last turn, uh, you know, that's going to be a pretty, pretty useful key. But if you have all speed 10 units, then you're really not getting value when you have to pick up a loot token because you're no longer flying, you're no longer nimble, you're only speed five. So uh, I think that just being aware that you're likely going to play one of these four scenarios, if not more than one of these four scenarios in almost every tournament you go to, um, 
so make sure you, you have some practice with it. You have the uh, the reps with the list and you know what your units do and how you're going to win those scenarios. In the Northeast, we have a term for these scenarios, uh, specifically plunder and invade. Um, and I think credit goes to the shambling horde for this one. Um, but we refer to them as toilet bowl scenarios. Um, people st- will tend in these ones, um, especially in plunder and invade and most of the time on push they'll you'll find that more often than not people will tend to stack on opposite sides and fight in the middle so if you're list building making sure that you have a battle group that can occupy a flank stall opponents redeploy if needed something to not just allow your opponent to bring his or her army or his or her tokens over and then potentially turn a flank um some units um they recommend four shambler regiments Scouting them up into terrain, defense five, relatively cheap cost, but something that will require a turn or two to move against most units. Um, anything that you can have that can delay and um, making sure that you're competing on the flanks as well. Um, big piece of advice for these scenarios, if it does turn into a toilet bowl, right, where each one kind of goes their own way and you fight in the middle, make sure that you're not leaving a flank just open, um, especially against a movement-based list because they will punish you and they will take advantage of giving a free flank. So um, Brock troops are a great example um, or a small bo- uh, battle group, just anything you can have that projects threat, even if you have to back up a turn or two. The biggest thing in these, and it, it works in most missions, like most of our advice, but um, you got to be careful what you think about as chaff. It's not just, hey, I brought Gur Panthers, that's chaff, or I brought Snow Foxes, that's chaff, like Adam talked about, right? Sometimes Shobik is the ideal chaff piece because he's going to hold up half an army while he grinds with the enemy's orklings. Um, in movement especially, all that matters is if you're moving and they're not, you win. So sometimes your chaff is actually your giant hammer horde just soaking up wounds while your cheeky little regiment skirts around the back and scores you the game. I tell in movement, especially take all your emotional attachment out of your big shiny toys out of it and just look at the opponent's list and say, if I put Shobik in, will he survive? Can I chaff it up? If I see my opponent layer some chaff, how thick of a unit can I slam in there and then say, oops, I'm going to disengage this turn. Feel free to counter charge me again. Like you remember, you don't have to kill their chaff. That's probably the biggest mistake I see new people see. We clash, we countercharge. Uh, in a movement-based game, if his chaff is in the way, don't kill it, and then it's not in. Uh, it's still in the way. I'll add to as a general tip for playing these scenarios, especially for new players. Be careful about your clock. These scenarios are significantly easier if you give yourself a good five or ten minute cushion on top of what you're normally used to, if possible. Um, because later in the game, you know, you're going to have this math of like, okay, there's five unit strength on my side. I have three on the other one. But if I charge back onto my side to delete something, am I going to still lose the game or what's the trade off or you know, adding, doing that mental math of tokens on your side versus tokens on the other. The more time that you can give yourself to take a deep breath, turns five, six, and seven, and figure out a good plan um, in the later game, the more successful that you'll be. Um, because there's no such thing as a good player who can play with no time on their clock. Doesn't matter how good you are. If you're out of time, it's dice down. So making sure that you have a good plan and a good set 
amount of time and that you're budgeting your time accordingly. If you're taking too long on a movement, um, make a conservative mood, go back to it later. Always, always try to keep a good cushion on your clock. Keith brings up a really good point uh, where I think a lot of, uh, uh, you know, good players naturally do that, whether they're thinking about it or not. Um, but if you find yourself listening to this, be like, I, I've never taken a minute to just look at the board and how do I actually map out a win, you know, halfway through the game, turn five, turn six, you know, no matter what turn it is in the game, if you just don't find yourself doing that at all, I uh, would highly recommend just doing what Keith said here and um, give yourself just like a two minute timer, you know, maybe in a practice game, maybe not in a, you know, a competitive game, but when you're practicing, give yourself a couple minutes, look at the board and assess the situation and, and see if you can just reestablish what is the plan from there. Um, Cause those are absolutely things that I know Keith does and I do, uh, and it's worked for us. So 90% of your games, your plan that you have at the beginning is going to change halfway through because dice are dice and that's just how it goes. So the more time that you can give yourself, the more flexibility you'll have later on. Adam doesn't give bad advice though. Like if, if you find in tournaments that you struggle with time to play, put a timer on your phone for four minutes and just when it becomes your clock, hit that timer and just ponder. And when the four minutes goes off, stop the clock and start moving what you've decided on. And you'll be, the rest of it will just come with it. But I mean, I've done it, right? Mm. I've spent 12 minutes thinking. And then by the time turn seven comes, I don't get to make an attack. I just have to move and push the button. So if, if you're struggling with time, put a timer. There's a whole separate episode that we could do talking about ways to save time. So uh, my US Masters. And that's coming because we need, because there's a lot of new players that need this information, right? Oh, sure. They're always in the back of their mind. They're like, oh, I can't go to a tournament. It's the clocks are too intimidating. Every player is different, but things like dice cups, things like making sure that you are going over um, specifics, like what to do about cock dice, what to do about pre-measuring before, so you don't have to have those conversations on your clock. Um, having like a pre-deploy plan, like I deploy most of my units this certain way, so just quick and easy, saves myself a couple minutes on the clock. Those little things add up, and you will appreciate that time later. My dice are color blocked in sets of 10. I can count them so fast. Yep. How does this style of scenario play into your army composition? Movement really favors combined arms in a way that some of the others don't, right? Adam talked about it. Keith talked about it. If you have only alpha, tokens hurt you bad. If you have only slow surge, invade hurts you bad. If you don't have an answer for a table with extra thick terrain, like some of the stuff we see at Forge or Lady the Lake, um, your hordes just won't respond to the mission. You're going to get punished. So having a list that has some things that are fast, some things that are thick, some things that can mitigate terrain. I always encourage a player, if you have access to it, maybe consider a flyer or at least a nimble scoring unit like a chariot hero. A come-all list is really good at movement-based scenarios because whatever it is, it has some piece that plays it really well and other pieces that you can throw away to make your opponent's life hard. Um, so Adam touched upon this earlier, but identifying when you build the list who your token carriers are going to be um, is a really important part of the list building process. So while it may be tempting to 
take all hammers or to take all speed 10 flyers, eventually there'll be a point where you need to commit, where you need to sit on a token, where you need to hold something, or when you're on the opponent's side of the board and you can't contribute. And I think this is where the shooting scoring units really shine. Um, so talking specifically about Mind Screeches, Abyssal Warlocks, Nyad Heart Piercers, units that aren't necessarily giving that much uh, for speed because they'll drop down to speed five, um, but they can always contribute, right? So that I'm still holding a token, but I can still shoot, I can still cast, I'm still affecting the game. And that level of um, flexibility is kind of what pushes them to be natural uh, token carriers. But when you're going against them and you see your opponent's list, knowing that they'll most likely be um, token carriers um, from your opponent's side uh, point of view, target them, right? You can deploy against them, um, include that as part of your game plan. Um, it's really tempting to use zombies, draugr, scarecrow, ghouls, um, right? The babysitter's club, as we like to call them, because they're always on the back line or they're always sitting on a token and pillage, you know, just doing their thing. Dash 15, not a care in the world. Um, but be careful because you will have some savvy opponents who turns five or six will take that dwarf lord or large beast or that beast of nature or um, start targeting it with shooting. And they may not last. They most likely will last one round of combat, but seldom two. So just be careful about having them as your token carriers because they are squishy. Um, and I think where the speed comes into play as an advantage isn't necessarily for sitting on tokens, but giving yourself the option to go get a token that maybe was lost or something that was shot. Like a, oops, well, that happened. So this thing that was carrying it, you know, double six or 11 spike, and now I've dropped a token. Having the option to have a fast, nimble unit to say, okay, well, it's turn four. I can zip back and go pick it up so I don't lose all these points and they're not just sitting in no man's land um, is something that's extremely important. So when you're building a list, not only to have token carriers, but also do you have token insurance? Do you have, or are you layering your line such that if something does happen and you drop a token due to shooting, what do you have that can pick it up again? So it's not just free points for your opponent. Yeah, and I'd say um, another thing to consider when list building is uh, a lot of, or some of these scenarios, you know, loot and plunder in particular, um, will come into more of a, a standoff mode where you're threatening to go pick up a token or you're threatening to kill whatever unit comes and picks that token up. But your opponent's in the exact same you know, holding pattern where they're threatening to go pick up the token or to kill something that you throw in there, um, but nobody necessarily commits. Um, so th there's a couple different ways you can address that depending on what options you have in, in your lists or what army you're playing. Um, one of the, the ways to address it is just being uh, a very defensive unit. So usually this comes in the form of defense six or very high nerve um, with, with, a, with a higher defense as well. Uh, so units like siege breakers, um, uh, earth elemental, uh, the Shobik, even uh, the, what's it called? Tree Herder and Wiltfather. Um, all of those are, you know, really good examples of units that if they go pick up a token, they usually just don't care if they get single charge. Um, 
you can definitely threaten, you know, a, a double charge on them and they don't really want to be in those situations. But those, those types of units are more than happy to go pick up a token and start that engagement off. Uh, another thing you could do is use a piece of chaff. Um, so if you, you know, put a, uh, a Tundra Wolf unit or a, a Snow Fox unit out there and pick up the token, just knowing that they're going to get charged, you're just forcing the your opponent to commit in before you counter them at that point. So it's, um, it really comes down to, you know, you either play defensive and you pick it up with an important unit, you use a chaff unit to pick it up, or if you're in a position where you didn't take either of those options, um, your opponent's likely going to decide what picks up the token, how it gets picked up, and how the engagements happen after that. Yeah, there, we'll talk about it in the specific missions, but on Adam's piece, we'll use the, the Tundra Wolf example. If, if you're going to have to pick it up with Tundra Wolves, but then the Tundra Wolves are going to die, and you're not sure you can kill what's coming in, so say they have a tree herder, one thing you could do is just shove the Tundra Wolf in front of it so that the Tree Herder has to close to engagement range, but when he kills the Tundra Wolves, they're not on the token, and you can make it a, a pretty risky overrun, for example. Maybe he has to leave his list. Um, obviously, every table is different. It's all going to be different, but sometimes the best solution is to not touch the token and just be in the way. Like, if you have it, you can lose it. And in Invade, Invade doesn't follow these same rules but for any token mission, sometimes nobody scoring it is the best answer, especially on uh, push. It, zero points is better than two to him or one to you, right? Well, let's take it from the opposite side. You know, how does your opponent's army and its composition affect you, your play in this? Keith, you want to start us off? So two things that should jump out uh, playing against, you know, if you pick up your opponent's list and say, all right, well, what's in here? Um Look for Scorched Earth and look for Wind Blast. Um, Movement-based uh, scenarios, um, I mean, this is their bread and butter, right? Uh, you want to be able to Wind Blast things off of objectives, back onto your opponent's side of the board, away. Um, as a general rule of thumb, right, um, most of the time when you play push, you have a unit on one flank that gets all the tokens. Your opponent has a unit on their flank that gets all their tokens. You move them up across, and then you fight for the middle. Uh, however, if your opponent has Wind Blast, something that you may want to do is to spread those tokens out because units that are carrying tokens can't be affected by Wind Blast or Enthrall. So something just to keep in mind if you think it would be beneficial if they're leaning heavily into the Wind Blast um, style of play. Um, keeping those tokens spread out across multiple units could be beneficial and something that's important. Um, now, just because they're often played with a, you know, leave two flanks unprotected and fight in the middle doesn't necessarily mean you need to play it that way. In fact, what separates these um, scenarios from all the other ones is that you don't have to play for the middle. Um, there's variable ways to win, and we'll get into that with each specific scenario, but you don't have to fight for the middle. If you're playing push, you can make your plan to get your tokens across and keep your opponent's tokens from getting over, and that's enough for a comfortable win right there. Um, you could try to steal your opponent's um, tokens and then not fight for the middle in that scenario. Same thing with invade, too. Um so making sure that you take all of that into account and realize that it doesn't have to be the meet you in the middle, we'll smash your kill box 
versus my kill box. Um, so for new players, uh, the term kill box um, often see in lists such as goblins. We're going to see more in salamanders and basileia, but it's just that centerpiece of, all right, here's my combat units. I have some shooting. I have this um, radiance of life and heal mechanic that'll ensure that if you don't kill me in one hit, I'm back to normal the next turn. Um, they're traps, right? And if you can have and play a scenario where you don't have to engage the kill box, you don't have to walk into that trap, you'll find yourself setting yourself up for um, more success in your games because as I'm sure Kyle has stories and as I experienced at Masters versus uh, Travis, right? Those war trombones hurt. And there are many examples of um, just like efficient shooting that can be centrally deployed that if you go anywhere near it, it'll take off your best hammers in the game. So things to watch out for. But realizing in these scenarios, you don't have to play that game. If you've brought enough pieces that center on movement, if you have um, a different plan than fighting for the middle, you don't have to go into that trap. So if you feel like you just keep, you know, butting your head up against the wall over and over and over, try a different strategy. Try to find points elsewhere or deny your opponents from getting points as a way to win. Keith is a master because he spends more time thinking about these things. Um, I have too many drops to juggle that much thought. So I look at my opponent's list and I try to break it out into one of one of three categories, right? Is he better at defense than me? Is he better at offense than me? Or is he better at shooting than me? Because that tells me how I need to play that mission, right? If my opponent outshoots me, I need to figure out where I'm going to be able to weather the storm the best. I'm probably going to hide my tokens either on fearless units or I'm going to put them in the second rank. So if the front rank gets wavered, the token holder just double times right past them. Um, I'm, I'm trying to figure out, you know, how is it set? How do I need to run it? If he's better at defense than me, immediately my brain goes, is this a mission where I can just not let him score, right? You want to win the defense game? I'll let you play all the defense you want on your half of the table. If you're better at offense than me, I need to look at, can I deploy in a way that prevents him from doing that exact same thing to me? So I'm, I'm trying to run the... Kings is a lot of triangles, right? This beats this beats this. Um, so I'm, I'm looking at my opponent's list and very quickly trying to decide, am I going to be the aggressor or am I going to need to find a way to play defense on his side of the table? And understanding how your army interacts with their shooting balance, various different like hammer balances and, and very different, various different defense style playlist is super important so as a new player sometimes not knowing your list just sucks and it just takes a lot of games right we all say you got to lose a lot of times before you start winning but for me especially in movement-based scenarios you have to understand which style of play your opponent's bringing and know how to pilot your list against it um, if you get those right You've, you've solved a big part of the battle. But if, if you think you're going to win defense and you should have been playing offense, you're going to give your opponent free points you shouldn't have given him. Or if, if you're confident you can out-tank his shooting and he just starts ripping your armies apart, you, you lost that battle plan. So that's what I look for. Just what type is it? Who's going to win what? And then that tells me everything else. Yeah, I, I agree. It, you have to know your army's capabilities uh, before you can really assess your opponent's capabilities. Um, and there, there's a lot of different army types out there. Uh, when I think of like Keith's herd list, 
uh, it's a very fast, very mobile, very flexible list where it can do a lot of different things. It can play a lot of different ways, uh, but not every army can play a lot of different ways depending on what their opponent does. So there are some armies out there that your game plan is the the same in this scenario, no matter what the ar- uh, opponent's list is, just because you you know what your army is capable of you have that game plan, you try to execute it. Sometimes you have a good matchup and you can execute it. Sometimes you have a much more difficult matchup that counters your your plan. But there are going to be certain armies that you create or you take yourself that just won't have the opponent's army in mind. Um, So just be aware of what what is your list and how is it going to change based off of the opponents and if it's not going to change that's not necessarily a bad thing now it's time to get in the meat potatoes of this episode where we actually go in and talk scenario by scenario we're going to start with loot number two it's been around a long time loot before rolling off the two sides place three loot counters on the center line of the board one must be placed in the exact center of the board or as close to it along the center line as possible. And then players place one more each, rolling off to see who places their first. Loot counters cannot be placed within 12 inches of each other or within three inches of blocking terrain. Victory points are awarded at the end of the game as follows. One victory point for each loot counter you hold. I'll start with the simplest fact and then let the actual masters go over the math. Uh, loot's one of those missions where, like we've talked about in the previous episodes, you get to pick what third of the table you want to fight on, and your opponent gets to pick what third of the table they want to fight on. And if they want to spread you out or turtle it all together, and how you place that little token heavily has to influence that because you can you can make it almost impossible for your opponent to place on your side of the board if that's where you put it. But loot is incredibly skill base for placing that single token and then uh about the skill i'll just let people who won masters tell you how to do it so uh one thing to remember about loot is that tokens can be placed defensively so when you take a look at the table and you go look at the center line the 24 inches um up and you know cutting the table in half um, check to see if there's any impassable terrain along the center line. Because um, if you place first, you may be able to dictate where the second token must be placed. Like if there's a impassable terrain close to a board edge, and then you uh, deploy maybe 11 and a half inches from that, you know that the opponent needs to place on the other side. Like there's mathematically not enough room for he or she to place any closer. So you can dictate where they would place theirs. Um, so... If you're playing a grind list, a general strategy is to place as close to the center token as possible, knowing that you're going to want to grab both the center and the one that you just placed as close to 12 inches as possible. Um, so that goes for anything that has a lot of heal, defense six, um, your general combat lists, right? You want those two in the middle so that you can play for both of them. Um, if you're playing like a movement style alpha uh, strike list, put one on the flank. Um, If your opponent puts two in the center, know that you'll try to grab the one on the flank and then try to turn a flank on the other side and compete for one of the two tokens that they've grabbed, usually around turn five or six. Um, Knowing that spreading out the tokens as much as possible could allow you to play to your strengths, right? Pulling apart um, the enemy. So a popular list this year, Forces of Nature, um, 
key to combating that list, right, is to get the Gladewalker Druid. So the further apart that you can um, spread out the uh, height four to six units that they like to hide behind, um, so you can get in there and try to either tag the Gladewalker through shooting or with combat or a cheeky flyer, uh, the more successful you'll be. Um, but being aware of what style list you're playing really helps with loot first and foremost. If you're playing a shooting list, you want to put your loot token somewhere where uh, there's no cover, right? There could be cover on your side so that you could um, sit in the cover and shoot as people try to advance or like a nice hill on your side so you could have a line of sight to the enemy. Um, But knowing that eventually if they want to compete for that token, they have to step out to the open. That gives you an advantage for your shooting style list. Um, And then if you're like Eric Trowbridge and you're playing in fill the board, all orcs, all the time list, then you're fine because you can just try to, you're going to fill the board no matter what. So you just place wherever you think is most beneficial to you. That, that was great. I, I don't have anything else. <laughs> so a general strategy that you can do, um, and Alex Kuss uh, coined this term in our chat for uh play the rugby style for those not familiar, right? Lateraling backwards. Um, So handing off tokens. Um, Take a look at Dash 28. Mike Rossi had a really good rules review from um, a recent GT um, ruling that you can drop. um, So something came up, right, where they were playing with the one-inch withdraw. The opponent who was holding a token did the one-inch withdraw because the counter charge back in counted as a move. You were able to drop the token. So thinking about movement not just like okay it's the movement phase i'm turning to move but that the word movement like moves happen outside of the phases specifically or outside of just the movement phase also in the combat phase um there are cheeky things that you can do with tokens um so if you want to pass something backwards right that rugby style lateraling it back to a cheap unit or knowing that that your enemy's hammer is coming in and you don't want to give that token to them dropping it and then, right, because um, you can drop a token at the end of any movement. Um, so there's at, some at the beginning, ways, or at the beginning um, of any movement. So if you're going to withdraw, you can drop a token, charge back in. So just be mindful of that if you're playing against uh, opponents who are going to use that. Um, yeah, remember- that was me. I'm guilty, <laughs> Keith. <laughs> that he wrote the article about my game. Against uh, Jeff Shulkin. Okay. Loot is one of those missions where one thing you should be looking at an opponent's list and your own list is, I call it the uh, triple flappy token. So three cheap flyers. Loot has three tokens. If they get, if you win top of turn and you have three flyers and you've deployed it in a way that each flyer can move up, pivot, and end their turn on a token and grab it, you can position yourself so that you're more than 12 inches away from the opponent deployment line because you just have to touch the token and the token's bigger than a flat line. So you can have it so your opponent needs to charge 12 and a half inches. So uh, Jeff O'Neill's done it. I've done it. Lots of players have done it. If you have three characters that can go that fast, and technically you can do it with a speed six nimble unit, um, but if you deploy them across from each token and pivot at the top of the first turn, you basically give your opponent one turn to win those tokens back. Uh, and if they don't, 
All you have to do is pivot and go five inches and slam the rest of your army in front of it. And then uh, just get shot for six turns while you have all three victory points hiding in a corner. Or you can pick them up, drop them, and then spin your fast units back around, right? If you picked it up with a Draken Horde, well, you picked it up with a Draken Horde. You want them back fighting, so just drop it. Let some other cheap disposable thing go get it. Or I should say regiment. Hordes aren't nimble anymore. Um, thank God. But uh, loot especially, if your opponent has three flying units that have nimble or some sort of fast thing, my first instinct defensively, if I don't have an answer for it, is I need to figure out how to threaten whatever flies out or runs out to grab that token. Because if you don't, from experience, you've probably lost the game, right? Whether it's a tree herder, three tree herders, whether it's three wingets, three uh, heroes on Pegasus, uh, three beasts of nature, um, whatever EOD has now, flappy bone thing. Um, as long as they can get 12, yeah, scavengers, right? As long as they can get 12 inches, you have to have a way to kill it, right? So that means having your fast heroes, right? Your king on chariot, your shooting units, um, having your own flying fast units countering it. You know, no one wants to put a scavenger in and expose a flank to a draken regiment while holding a token because then the draken's just going to say, thanks for giving me the token and I can reform 180 instead of 90. So you got to be very careful. It's kind of like the four move checkmate in chess, right? Once you know it's possible, it's really hard to have happen to you. But if you've never experienced somebody turn one, picking up all three tokens and you didn't have an answer for it and you've just lost, um, it, it hurts. So I know there's a lot of new players in the community. I'll, I'll save you the, the instant loss that happens constantly <laughs> to three wing at goblins. Um, just have an answer. And all of a sudden those fast disposable units aren't tough enough to make that play. And then they have to play you honest. This scenario is a good one to teach um, and learn about the layering technique. Um, for new players, it's really tempting to take every unit that you have, deploy on the 12-inch line, everyone next to each other, and just this giant phalanx of charge go out for blood. Um, but having that insurance, right, having units that are positioned behind or layered um, so that you have contingencies, you have the ability to either pass tokens backwards or knowing that you've grabbed a token, but then they've just gotten clobbered, you have something to counterpunch. So the entire flank just doesn't die with that. Um, it is tempting for all of us to want to deploy up and to have everything ready to go charging after that token, but making sure that you keep at least a couple units behind um, can really benefit. And I think that loot's a good scenario to teach that. So I, I think uh, one one thing that we should touch base on too with loot is uh, we we talked about you know the benefit of the first turn if you have the speed to jump on the tokens to to get them quickly and to you know kind of put your opponent on the back foot. Um, there's also a huge benefit to having the last turn, um, and that comes down to the end of the game when tokens are just being brawled over essentially where there's a huge scrum in the middle uh you know your it's one unit comes in picks up the token it gets killed by an uh, enemy unit then you counter and kill that unit and it's just a trade back and forth of the tokens exchanging hands well if you have the bottom of the turn uh whether it's turn six turn seven and you have the last say as long as you kill the unit 
that was holding the token, even if your opponent has two, three, four units looking at that unit, the game's over, you hold the token, you you win. So um, understanding what uh, what's going to be more beneficial to you. If you can get that early jump and get in position, turn one's best. But if you don't see a benefit either way for a, a turn one, this is actually a scenario where turn two can be a, a lifesaver. Absolutely agree. If, if you can counter their turn one jump and you don't have one of your own, don't take it. Then conversely, if your opponent doesn't have a turn one jump and you don't either, make them take turn one. I think that's so important. I'm glad you guys uh, touched upon that, is that these four scenarios specifically, and we'll get into this uh, more specifically in the next one, but that mindset of going first, right, always being beneficial, not always applicable, especially in these four. Like You'll have a, a good advantage in some of these if you can figure out what your opponent's plan is, and then at the end, take it away from them, right? So especially in loot where it doesn't matter where the tokens are. They can be on your side. They can be on your opponent's side. They're all worth one no matter what. So playing spoiler at the end um, to your opponent on that bottom of six, bottom of seven um, is a good advantage and a strategy that you can play too. Your little flying dart heroes in loot, they don't score and it doesn't matter what side of the board they're on. So near the end of the game, they just become that disposable chaff. Right, I we dropped a token. We've got it. Um, my biggest advice is if you think you're gonna die, drop the token, walk in front of it, so that they have to overrun. Better to give zero points than to give your opponent one. And you can get creative um, when playing defensively with loot tokens. So if your horde of infantry is holding a token um, and it's being attacked by, say, a titan like Shobik versus Spirit Walkers. Um, they go in, deal some damage, you do some damage back. If you think that your horde is going to die, you can drop the token. And as long as it's completely underneath your base, you can prevent your opponent from overrunning directly onto the token by dropping it at one of the corners or the edge. So thinking that turn ahead or thinking like, if this is something that is going to die, but I want to deny my opponent from picking it up if they have a smaller base size, as long as it's completely underneath your base, you can deploy it anywhere, right? You could drop it. And then they may not necessarily have the movement or the base side to overrun, base size to overrun onto it. So something that you can play looking a turn ahead. And if that does happen, you end up winning the combat, you can just reform back onto the token and pick it up. So a couple things to do, and it really benefits you to look a turn or two ahead, gauging the combat, what the um, statistics, right, what the, the math says should happen, and preventing your opponent from getting that easy. Because I think far too often in a mistake that I make is holding on for tokens too long. I know that this unit's going to die. Why am I still holding it? Why did I just give you, right? Because if you kill a unit in combat they can choose to just take the token directly from you. But if you have a base size advantage, or even if it's just dropping it and they have to roll a two plus, right, a two up to overrun onto it, not only have you dictated their movement that they've had to overrun, but there is a small chance that they may not even end up on the token. So little things that you can do by thinking ahead that would give yourself an advantage um, can pay dividends later, especially with the tokens. And a fun fact is, in combat, if a unit with a token were to die, the enemy has to take the token on an eligible unit. 
So the only time the token is actually ever dropped uh, when it's held in a combat is if it was only individuals engaged with the unit that died. Hmm. Interesting fun fact. Well, and you know, it's probably something that never comes up, right? <laughs> yeah. Because why would you not want to take the token, right? But there's been situations. So an example of that would be uh, the uh, I had a situation where I was playing elves and my opponent uh, killed one of my units that had a token and they were supposed to pick it up. But I have two hordes of dracons looking right at that unit and they're like. Well, I, I don't want to pick it up because they were looking, they're like, well, I can just reform and position in such a way that you can't actually sit and pick up the token. You can kill my unit, but you can't get to the token if I don't pick it up. Um, so there are situations that it could matter, but the the just so that they have to pick it up, uh, but that's where... If they do a certain move, like a sidestep, an overrun, or a reform, they have the option then to drop the token at the uh, beginning of that move. Um, but it's going to be under their base when they start that move. So uh, just the more you know and the mechanics of how those loot tokens work uh, so that you don't get caught off guard. And scouting onto loot tokens, Adam Ballard? Yes, Keith, I'll, I'll let you... Can't pick them up on a scout move, folks. You gotta wait for your turn. Yeah, fun fact. You can pick up the token at the end of any phase. And scouting is not a phase. So so that is another uh, fun thing. A uh, little surge shambling trick um, that I've done. So drop a token if you have it at the beginning of your movement phase. Um, and I've had a situation where uh, Shobik is kind of in a scrum uh, and he, you know, he wasn't engaged in combat, but he's within an inch of a bunch of these different units. And I've had Shovik just drop the token, do a complete 180. And I surge Shovik into the unit that was directly behind him. But Shovik's still on top of the token after uh, the shooting phase. So I pick it up after the shooting phase. So you can, you can find those little nuanced things occasionally. Uh, and again, just knowing the mechanics of how the tokens are picked up, how they're dropped, what you can and can't do is really going to, uh, one, allow you to not be caught off guard and to potentially pull off some things that you didn't realize were even possible. Let's cover that, Adam, because that's either playing new people on UB or talking to people or even just reading fanatics when can I pick up a token or I did this, is it correct? So if we take tokens from the beginning, if somehow you're on a token in deployment that's actually on the map, you can't pick it up. I don't think we have any missions right now where that's possible, but you can't pick it up in deployment. You can't pick it up in scout. So you can't interact with the tokens before turn one. At the end of movement, you pick up a token at the beginning of a, of a turn or a movement rather you can drop a token. So it's always important to remember you drop at the beginning, you pick up at the end, in the shooting phase, end of phase, end of phase, end of phase. So yes and no. So again, interactions that come up very infrequently, but potentially have upsides. It, in, end of any phase. So if you move onto a token in your movement phase, you don't have to declare you're picking it up in the movement phase. Even if that unit doesn't have a shooting attack, we'll say you can declare that you're picking it up at the end of the shooting phase or say you want to figure out 
how these combats that you're engaged with interact, how those come out to be, you can wait until the end of the combat phase, until you know exactly how the board's going to look going into your opponent's turn, and you can say, all right, I'm picking up that token. Sometimes you want to see if you shoot that Night Horde off before your poor little rabble regiment picks up the token in front of the Night Horde. Absolutely. But it's always at the end of the phase, right? So movement, you can't pick up a token halfway through a move, then keep nope. going. It's always at the beginning you drop it, at the end you pick it up. There's no like move, pick up, move, or, well, I want to do it in the reverse order because I want to drop the token over here. Part of the balance of the mission is it is very regimented where in each phase it has to happen. Yep, absolutely. That covers loot pretty thoroughly. I think the nice thing is push is very similar in, in some ways. So some of the stuff that you guys talked about, how you interact and how you uh, you manage your loot tokens, I think there's going to be some overlap there. But let's jump into number three, push. After both players have set up their forces, roll a D3. Each player places that many loot tokens within their setup area, giving them to units to carry if they wish. Roll off to see who begins placing their loot tokens first, and the players take it in turns to place one loot counter each until they have placed them all. An additional loot counter is placed in the exact center of the board. Victory points are awarded at the end of the game as follows. Two victory points for each loot counter you hold where your unit is entirely on the opposing half of the board. One victory point for each loot counter you hold where your unit is at least partly on your half of the board. Well, who wants to start us off with push? Because I know you guys love this scenario. This is a great one, right? This, this is super fun. I mean, it's a great scenario, but just take a look at the amount of layers involved in this one. and Kings of- <laughs> I, I'm confused just reading it. In Kings of War, we have pretty simple scenarios, and it's one of the advantages of the game. But um, So first and foremost, because um, it's happened to all of us, right? The center is a loot token, not an objective marker. Um, so often confused with ways, <laughs> right? <laughs> It's a token, so you can pick it up. Don't end the game standing next to it, right? Being like, oh, I score this, where... Yep, so pick it up. It is a token. Don't use one of the uh, nifty uh, circle pads um, that you normally would for, like, a salty earth or a raise. Like, put an actual token down to remind yourself that it's something that needs to be uh, picked up. Um, So... Getting your tokens across the board is key, right? It's worth the most amount of points, and it's the easiest way to win. But it's important to remember that only doing that is usually not enough to win. Because if you're, generally, if you're focusing on getting all of your stuff across, right, your opponent is doing the same thing. And you may have already committed to escorting your uh, tokens across and not competed for the rest. Um, So you need to have a secondary plan. So... There's three ways, essentially, to get points. You can get victory points by having them on the opposing half of the board. Um, You can have victory points for the loot counter that you have that's at least partially in your half of the board. And then there's going back to what we spoke earlier about the defensive um, method, right? There's keeping your opponent from scoring. So if I get a couple of my loot counters across, but I prevent my opponent from getting theirs onto my side of the board... I've won regardless of what happens with the center. Um, 
so something that you you may not always think of or is not intuitive, but gaining points by preventing your opponent from getting them. Because sometimes when you're in the throes of bloodlust and you're fighting and you're trading tokens and units and this and that, um, and we'll get into this uh, again too in Invade, um, any fighting that you're doing on your opponent's side of the board matters because not only are your loot counters um, worth more for you, but if you're keeping their counters on their side of the board, you're going to prevent them from getting extra points as well. So something to think about, not necessarily how you're going to escort yours, but do you have something in your list that can block your opponent? Um, so if your opponent has a loot counter, right, um, and they've put all three on the same unit as is tradition, unless you're going against Wind Blast. What do you have that can um, keep them from marching across, right? What can you use to slow down the, um, their battle lines? Um, in a movement alpha strike list, you could have um, different flyers that are maneuvering around to like threaten flanks um, that cause your opponent to slow down and have to turn and face you, otherwise give up a flank. Um, if you're playing a grind list, um, you could have Earth Elementals, Nyad and Snarers, um, Shobik, anything that's resilient, Iron Guard, um, that can be used to stall, right? To get in the way, to slow them down. Or if you're playing Goblins, literally anything, right? That can get into their way and keep them from oh, going yeah. to your, your side of the, uh, uh, the board and preventing them from getting um, those points. I wanted to counter slightly and get your feedback. Um, we talk about how the normal is to put three on a guy in a corner, right? Create the toilet bowl scenario. I've got my unit. If you're looking at the board and you're worried, like we talked about in the, the beginning, right? I look at my opponent's list. What's it going to do? If you're worried, your opponent has a lot of ways to stop you up. Snow foxes, Gur panthers, fast chaff, lots of layers. Or if you just got the board edge with bad terrain and you're like, man, I'm, I'm going to be stuck. That's another situation where, in my mind, you should consider spreading out your tokens. Because if you're going to have three tokens and they're going to be able to chaff you up, make them spread the chaff out and reduce its impact. If you put three tokens in a corner, <clears throat> sorry, and I've got fast chaff, I'm the happiest dude. I'm like, sweet, let me just throw these bodies in here. I've got the whole mission wrapped up. But if you can spread those tokens out, you'd heavily mitigate being out chaffed or outspeeded. So I know like the normal, right? I've, I've played this tons. So the normal is three tokens in the corner, everyone gets in the way. And then we just see who's better at chaffing. But if you know you're going to lose the chaff game, force them to spread their chaff out. And you can heavily reduce um, the impact. So what's your feedback on that? Because I know you've, you've brought that up several times now. Sure. I, I think if there's um, one piece of advice, uh, one like main thing I'm trying to portray is that specifically in these scenarios, like you don't have to play your opponent's game. You don't have to fight for the center. You don't have to do um, the toilet bowl, right? The two things on either side, circle around, fight for the middle. And uh, not only does it make for more exciting games, but I think you bring up a really good point that spreading tokens out makes it so like, yes, you're more liable, but then your opponent also has to focus on those three and they have to spread themselves themselves out. And they may not have practiced. They may have never played a game of push where they've had to target units that were carrying three separate tokens because they're so used to, okay, you have yours on my side, I have this. We're just fighting for the middle. We're playing mini dominate. But changing that and flipping the script 
not only makes for a better game, but also can play to your advantage. I do want to give a shout out to, to um, Rashad uh, Riddle of Steel, which I had the pleasure of going to one year. Um, he has a unit sp- or a uh, mission specifically, um, a variation of push where you have to have um, tokens spread out. And just being forced to play that way made it seem like a completely different scenario. and was a lot more fun, right? It was a lot more tactical. You had to think about things more. Um, it wasn't just load them all up and escort them across and, you know, try to slow down my opponent, maybe if I could. Um, but you you don't have to do the move forward and just engage in the middle. Um, these movement-based scenarios are movement-based scenarios because there's different things you can try. So if you don't think that you want to go up against your opponent's uh, salamanders, triple phoenix huge hordes of unit strength you don't think you can kill them go around them spread your tokens out let them get the middle but try to either target theirs or try something different um these encourage sneaky wins these encourage shenanigans um there's a lot of flexibility with these scenarios um and i consider them some of the most fun for that reason so while many games will be played like uh, we normally see they don't necessarily need to be and you can take your opponent by surprise by trying something different. And I would encourage that for new players. So we're talking about trying something different um, and kind of the typical what we see with this particular scenario. But um, I've uh, become a fan, at least with certain army types, of uh, just putting all the tokens uh, not on a flank, but in the middle of the battle line and with a bunch of my other units around. So if you kill that unit, I have a bunch of other units that are going to kill you back and pick them right up. And then I'm just going to push forward and go pick up that middle token. And then I'm going to have four tokens. That's my goal. I don't care if you have three on the flank that just walked across. My goal is I got three in the middle. I want that fourth one. And I want to just get across the end zone, that middle line. And if I can do that, uh, you know, with a with an army like EOD that doesn't want to spread out. I don't want to try and play defense on this half and offense on this half. I want to I want to play in a very consolidated portion of the board. Uh, and I see four tokens right there, so that that's what I find myself doing uh, more often than not. Uh, versus the uh, the you know ships passing in the night, one on one side, one on the other, and then we'll we'll play for that one in the middle. I say let's throw all the eggs in one basket and go straight up the middle. And that can be hard to detect in deployment, especially if you're newer. So you can get caught off guard pretty quick, right? If Adam's deploying kind of deferred, you you think it's going to happen and you lose. You can throw a decoy unit out there and leave yourself the option. Sure. Because you deploy the tokens after you deploy the units. If they never counter it and that unit is completely free, yeah, there's no reason to risk it. But... If you're, you know, you throw one unit out on a flank and one unit out on another flank and you don't really support them and your opponent's like, well, I'll just put two units on each flank and there's no way they're getting across. Well, you just, you know, took out four units to for two of yours and now you're bulked up in the center ready to push across. So um, just something to uh, to be aware of as far as your options in this scenario, because there are many of them. And um, 
And I think it's also key that we touch on some of the, the nuances as far as uh, the tokens in the scenario. They, they are de- uh, placed after all deployment. So, you know, have an idea of what you want to do, see what your opponent's doing, and then after the deployment's done, you actually get to see what's the best option for you. And then I think another key thing... Yes, you alternate, yep. And another key thing with this uh, is that you don't have to put these tokens inside of a unit. A unit can start with the tokens, but you can deploy the token anywhere you wish in your uh, deployment zone. So an example of that would be, uh, I played against uh, Nathan Clevenger at US Masters in New York. Um, and I deploy just all on one half of the board, and he deploys just all on one half right right across from me. Then he proceeds to put all three of his tokens on the opposite side of the board where nobody's at, and then he turns a, uh, a, uh, a flying speed 10 unit, a gargoyle unit or whatever it was, and flies over, picks up the tokens turn one, and spends three turns walking them across the rest of the game. They weren't touched. <laughs> So, yeah, so just knowing knowing those nuances and knowing what could happen makes it to where you, one, potentially don't get caught out by that, or two, you have that one unit that potentially could do it in the right situation. So, If you're playing a fast, nimble army, um, one thing I like to do with push is to make two identical uh, battle groups on either flank. Uh, so with the herd, it's normally lichens, harpies, and either uh, moon pie or beast of nature. And then after everything's all deployed, I determine which flank do I want to put my tokens on, and then the other one can redeploy as needed. Like which one is the most advantageous, or is my opponent just giving me a free flank? And then that case, you know, I'll pass it to the harpies. They can run up, and then the uh, remaining units go join the battle and try to turn a flank. Um, but giving yourself that flexibility and you know, again, when we talk about clock management, this is a good time for new players before you just start throwing tokens out, right? Take a deep breath. Look, think about what is your secondary objective? Are you going to try to go for the center? Are you going to try to steal your opponent's tokens? Are you going to try to block them from getting onto your side? Like you need another way to win and making sure that you think about that before you place your tokens. Um is really really important so that that little time for reflection um can be a huge advantage as you go into your game so looking at placing tokens one of the things because like adam said we know where we are right we know where our units are we know where the board state is we know what side right that's something we don't get in most missions so one of the things that i'm looking at from a deployment standpoint and a token standpoint is do I have a way to get across the board quickly and then find cover, right? Whether it's getting out of line of sight, right? Do I have a regiment that can squeak past on the side of the board and then be behind a forest, but not touching it so that it's really, really hard to charge and shoot, right? What's my speed out of my zone? And then what's my security on the other side? Picking what side you want to play. If you're going to play the side, right? Let's assume we're just doing the generic. I take one side, you take the other. The the terrain getting across the board is important, but equally as important, if not more so, is what's going to meet you on the other side. If the other side is a big open field, 
it only takes a couple shooting units to find the token and just whittle through it or waiver stuff on the way and you're stuck. Um, so I, I love to try and figure out where I can nestle the person holding the token. And sometimes it'll change what holds the token, right? Like if a mincer can fit behind impassable, but a rabble regiment can't, that chariot base may be where I throw all the tokens because all of a sudden I've made it effectively unkillable on turn three. Whereas if I'm just going to have to soak all these shots and the boards built for Keith Randall to table me, maybe my token holder becomes the third rabble horde in the back. And I'm just going to waddle up and say, do 80 wounds. I dare you. Um, so again, it all comes back to understanding your unit, but in push specifically, you have the weird advantage of not only knowing what board edge you have, but you can see all your drops and make that call. But before you start deploying in your head, you should have a, okay, in a perfect world, I'll put it on this regiment and they're going to hide here. I'll put it on this chariot and it's going to hide here. Because if you if you deploy just sort of normal ad hoc and think, okay, I'll take the left, he's going to take the right. Sometimes you realize that regiment isn't quite as safe as you wanted it to. Or uh, worst case, I played a game once where I didn't measure the spacing between an impassable and the board edge on a horde, got there and realized I was a half an inch away from being able to walk across the middle. I had to pivot the horde and sidestep and hope for a seven. Like I, I put myself in a position that was unwinnable just because I didn't measure it. Don't do that. It sucks. I think piggybacking off of what you said too, not only are you determining what your token holders are going to be, who are your opponent's token holders, right? That's that next level. Um, commonly defense six, slow units, um, anything the dwarf army, but specifically iron guard. So your opponent may most likely choose units that aren't going to be slowed down too much by being reduced to speed five. Um, and also shooting units are another popular one. So the abyssal warlock, for example, doesn't really lose anything in speed can still, can still contribute with casting, with shooting, with inspiring and be a token holder at the same time. And knowing that and being able to work backwards, you may be able to know where his tokens are going to go before deployment. And then you can use that uh, to your advantage against him or her. The other sneaky is those height one chaff unit that Snow Fox, the Orkling, you can't see him to kill him. Uh, another call out of the tokens get placed after deployment, but before scouting. So you can deploy the tokens or knowing that your opponent can deploy tokens in a unit that then scouts up. Um, so just being aware that those are possibilities that can happen. Can you scout with a token, Adam? Does it change anything? We haven't talked about that specific interaction. So I give, I give the Wilt Daddy three tokens. What changes? He's speed five. That's the only thing that changes. And he's not nimble if, well, he's not nimble anyway. But if there was a scouting nimble unit, it's no longer nimble either. That's it. Worth covering. Well, let's keep rolling. This one's a little bit different. This is uh, scenario number five. This is invade. I know this is Keith's favorite. <laughs> I like this one because it's easy, right? This is yep. real simple. <laughs> so invade. At the end of the game, add up the total unit strength of each player's units that have the majority of their footprint on the opposing players, half of the board. This is the total number of victory points that each player scores. Super simple. No room for really any questions. It is, it is just, it is that. 
There, there's no nuances of how does a token interact or anything. It is just unit strength, majority opposing side of the board. Yeah, these are the good. These are the good day two hungover scenarios, um, but it's, it's still deceptively complex. Um, there's that extra layer of math involved over. Right, I have my unit strength. You have your unit strength. Um, you'll find sometimes turns five or six. You may need to send some of your unit strength back <laughs> to knock out some of your opponents or to engage along the center line and having um, to do that math in your head, right? Like I have a unit strength three unit. I'm going up against the horde. Is this change worth it? Because if I don't kill you, I've lost my scoring unit, right? My my score doesn't count for anything because it's back on my side of the board. Um, so talking again about clock management, about leaving yourself time, it's really important in Vade in the later rounds um, to have that opportunity to sort of reflect, right? To think about what the math is, think about what risks are involved, right? Like if it's a draw right now, do I send something back to go for a win? Um, or where is the center line if you didn't measure it ahead of time? Like what exactly is scoring, what is not? Um, so while the rules of this, uh, this scenario are easy to understand, the gameplay can be really complex because there is that trade-off of, um, you know, the unit strength amounts are, are living numbers, right? Each round they're increasing or decreasing depending on your the board state. Um, so there's a distinct advantage to units such as Silver Breeze and Scorch Wings, um, and I don't think it's any coincidence that there's tons of them at Masters this year uh, because they can contribute for the first couple turns with shooting, and then they still have that speed time to get over to the other uh, opposing side or hop over early, turn around, and then contribute for the rest of the game with shooting. Um, so something to look for if you're playing a slower grind-type list Um you want to balance. Um, if you march over too quickly, you're essentially out of the game, right? Because if you're on a flank, uncontested, you're over on your side of the board, um, you may not have given yourself enough time to get back into the fight or to contribute. So it's important that you time that well of like, okay, well, I want to try to engage in combat in the beginning of the game and still leave uh, leave myself enough time to get over the uh middle of the board um, without committing too early. Because I know that I've played games, especially coming from Herd to trying other armies, where I'm like, oh, yes, I made it to the opposing side of the board, but but now what? Now I'm here, and they're ignoring me for the rest of the game, and there's no way that I can contribute because I'm too slow. So be mindful of that and make sure that you have a plan. Um, specifically in Vade, it's really important to have a rough plan for all six to seven turns. Um, because you need to contribute uh, in order to be competitive and have every unit doing what they're supposed to. And I would say in general for invade first turn is almost always the, the right choice um, because there's very rarely in invade a situation where bottom of turn six or bottom of turn seven, uh, you have a choice of winning the game. Um, usually that choice, whether it was the bottom of the turn or the top of the turn uh, was going to be the right choice. It, it's not um, kind of how Keith had said before. It's not one of those sneaky wins or, uh, you know, you know, kind of shenanigans can happen if you have the bottom of the turn. In Invade, 
you want to go first because I think the most important thing you can do is set the battle line. And if you can set the battle line on your opponent's half of the board, you are already ahead of the game because then your opponent in the later turns is going to have difficult situations of, do I attack this unit that's on my side of the board where I'm on my side of the board right now? Or do I go for the scenario and go across the board? And so that battle line, when it's set on your opponent's side, is going to be uh, much more advantageous to you uh, in the long run, uh, as long as you can set an appropriate battle line where you're not giving up your flanks and everything, which is kind of the counter if you don't get the first turn and you see your opponents faster than you or they're coming across the board uh, faster, you have to be able to punish them if they're going to come on your side of the board if if you're unable to get to their side. Yeah, so a great example of an army that that matters a lot to is one that a lot of people don't think of being good at movement, which is uh, dwarves, right? They're slow, et cetera. So let's say dwarves get the first turn. A lot of your stuff's on the 12. You move it eight inches or six inches or some some math to get there. The middle line's only 12 inches away from deployment. So even a four-inch move, you're 12 inches away from deployment, you're threatening. So even if your entire army started hindered and you had to keep a flawless battle line, you're still threatening your opponent the second they try to tow your side. Um, if you can get the full eight inches with a lot of your stuff, you're threatening into their side of the board. Conversely, dwarves get boxed in a lot, right? Goblins get first turn, elves get first turn, and they push the dwarves in. That puts pressure on the dwarves, but it also gets rid of the one thing dwarves usually deal with, which is we don't get to fight sooner. So sometimes putting your opponent in a box <clears throat> is the right call. Um, but if you can go first, even the slowest army can force the fight to happen on your opponent's side of the board, or they have to take it to the dwarves and just say, look, I'm going to have to give you a charge. I'd rather die on your side of the board, and then my layers, like Keith talked about, will keep you on your side of the board. Right? If you're two units or three units deep, dwarves get first turn, move up eight. Um, maybe I do throw away my entire front line, just let them die. And then everything else I have just piles in. Um, but it's, it's something to, to keep in mind is you got to balance that, but also there's no army in Kings that can't win a mission. Like there's no single mission or single army where someone goes, I'm playing dwarves. I've lost invade. Cause I've heard that before, right? Like, oh, I just don't have a plan to win invade would change how you deploy or bring more claw shot or whatever they're called for dwarves. I don't, I don't know. Dwarves are too elite for me, but there's always a, there's always a way out. You don't just need scout and elves. You know, not everyone needs dracons to, to win Keith Randall. No, but they do need scorch wings. <laughs> um, a, couple, a couple logistical things too. Um, so for new players, when you start the game, um, identify where the center line is. Like you can mark it. Um, I know that there's some great maps out there, you know, um, that you can purchase just the um, the table. Help me out. What's the term I'm looking for? Battle mat, right? That has it already printed and some even come with the dominate circle just so it's never a matter of question or a bumped unit or any of that. Like the more that you can do ahead of the game to prevent any of that, like a clear center line is really important in this one because um, it's a feel bad moment if you thought that you were over, but when you actually go down to measure it, it's not. Um, Another common thing that may come up, if you're playing on a gaming table, um, 
determine with your opponent, like, are we playing the mat? Or are we playing the table? Because sometimes the table is a little bit larger than the mat, but people have been playing in these tables and like measuring from the table edge versus the mat edge. So something that may come up that's worth a conversation with your opponent and something to identify ahead of time um, could be a way to you know, prevent any miscommunication or anything. Cover it when you do your, your start a game description. Like I always reroll any dice that's not flat on the mat. Speaking of the mat, do we want to measure from the edge of the mat or the edge of the table? Like if you just get used to the habit of asking the same three questions, hey, I roll my dice this way. Here's how many dice I have. Here's where the symbol is. Is it on the six or the one? Um, and how do you want to measure the mat? Like if you can just start every game with that, not only will your clock be faster because you won't have as many questions, but you'll get more sports votes. So going back to uh, the conversation about these being defensive scenarios, um, it's a perfectly viable tactic. If you know that your opponent is layering deep, you know, they have their hordes of rattles, rabble or their Draugr or their scarecrow hordes stacked behind each other. And they're going to push this flank. Um, there are many useful strategies, um, things that you can do scorched earth units within snare, um, Defense five, hindered in woods units, anything that you can put in the way to prevent your opponent from crossing the line um, earns you those points by prevention, right? So that invisible math of, well, you're not gaining anything, you're preventing your opponent from um, getting points. Um, and that's sort of that meat grinder approach where anything is chaff. Like if it's turn five or six and your opponent's about to get a horde across the unit strength, uh, unit strength for a horde across the center line at that point anything is chaff right anything that you can do to prevent them from scoring those units um, benefits you in the long run so make sure that you're flexible in your deployment so that not only are you trying to get your uh, units across to score but if there's anything in your list that you included for list building purposes as defensive units as you know, whether it be giant hordes or something that can survive or take a charge or hold up cheap hordes, um, use those to your advantage and deny your opponents to benefit yourself. So, Adam, I want to ask you a question because it doesn't apply to me or Keith with the armies we take. How do you approach deployment when your opponent drastically out unit strengths you? Like, I could just go in a corner, move everything across, and I win the game. Does that, how do you think about that? Because it's, I don't have experience piloting armies that are heavily out unit strength. Uh, the only army that I play that's heavily out unit strength would be elves, um, which they have the shooting to be able to combat uh, and to uh, pick off unit strength at range. Um, my EOD has a lot of unit strength. I take a lot of infantry in that. And when I played night stalkers, it was one of the highest unit strength armies Uh as well as likely the highest number of units with unit strength in the tournament. I thought you played uh, so, the old, uh, every legendary EOD that only had like 18 unit strength. My bad. No, no, no. I play a horde of uh, skeletons, two regiment of spearmen, a, a regiment of mummies, a couple troop of mummies, uh, like usually two enslaved guardians. Uh, That's fair. I'll repose the question to Keith then, because I know Keith does have some elite armies. How do you, how do you consider being heavily out deployed and invade? Cause it, in my mind, it's a huge advantage to bring like 38 unit strength. So if you're not competitive in terms of unit strength, hopefully you've made sacrifices so that the units that you do have are quality. Um, so if you have a low unit strength list, hopefully 
it includes Shobik or it has tree herders or um, it has a couple phoenixes or way to keep your units alive. Um, so you could stand off against a unit strength 27 um, scarecrow or rabble spam list and hold up those units. Um, You're saying like if I'm going to scout up with the tree, fight them, um, but prevent them or don't engage. If I'm going to have a tree herder and you sitting in the woods and you're coming up with a rabble horde, I never have to attack you if I'm going to keep you on your side of the board because you'll never win that combat. If you go in hitting on sixes, there's a good chance that we're just there all day if I have Radiance of Life and some heal to back it up. Or if you're low unit strength because what you've invested in are flyers or um, you know nimble hordes, use that to an advantage of you've spread yourself out um, so that you can play getting onto their side of the board, flanking them, trying to uh, get some high-scoring units of theirs bottled up or, um, you know, form a pincer movement if you can. Um, so hopefully what you've done is you've chosen quality over quantity, and your quality can um, stand up and deny your quantity from coming across because at the end of the day there's only so much board space and with the way terrain is and impassable if you're going to bring four to five hordes it's pretty clear looking at most tables where those hordes are going to go um so use terrain to your advantage you know i don't need to fight that horde if there's a big forest in front of that i know they're out of the game for at least three turns while they trudge across so use that time use that flexibility if you've taken flyers or if you have shooting um to focus on other units and then come back to them. Um, so just a couple of, of tips that have worked for me in the past, or I hope that your opponent has given you a flank and so you can take that flank and turn it as quickly as you can, and that your opponent has stacked uh, infantry hordes and are trying to fight a regiment of forest shamblers in the woods. Man, you guys are masters for a reason. Those are those are all the ways that I lose. The the most common mistake big MSU armies or, or big unit strength armies make is they overcommit to a specific spot in the board. And then that spot gets held up by a tree herder or by forest shamblers or by a unit of Gur Panthers with another unit of Gur Panthers behind it and another one behind it. I think even now a, a Phoenix, right? Like there are so, there's so much good radiance of life and heal nowadays. Um, it's dangerous for some trash armies. So uh, if you heavily outgrind your opponent, the, the flip side is, let's say I've got 28 unit strength. As tempting as it is to shove it all in a corner, I could also have 14 unit strength on the left and 14 unit strength on the right and make my opponent pick. Or you could play, you know, the two thirds game, right? Like a third of the left, a third of the right of the middle, and they're all supporting each other. But I can say you can't chaff both sides. And there's there's some pieces. So it's a it's an easy trap to fall into if you're the pilot of the huge army, right? The all scarecrows or the rat can or Rob's kings of men. If you over defer a flank or over commit, sometimes you miss a chap unit and it can stop you from scoring anything. And that feels bad. I would, uh, I counter that with, uh, usually those armies that have a large amount of unit strength have some form of a damage output, whether it be like, a single hammer or two uh, in combat units or, you know, for goblins, it's, you know, all the plank shooting and the little uh, individuals plus the war trombones and the wingets, you know? So if you know you out unit strength, your opponent, 
instead of just saying, I'm going to put all my unit strength in this line and push it across, you just understand that your opponent has to come to you. You deploy in a, I would call a normal faction, and you deploy that box of death that we talked about earlier. And you say, my unit strength's in the box of death. You have to come to it, and you have to commit unit strength to kill my unit strength. So it's just going to be a trade if you uh, want to uh, want to try and do that trade. I'm, I'm set up. I'm ready for it. If you're trying to, you know, get fancy, I would say, and split your units this way and that way, and focus. sometimes you don't want to focus on the scenario, uh, like with Invade, like that. You want to focus on understanding who needs to come to who, and if they have to come to me, how do I set up to best combat them? If, if I need to go to them, then maybe I need to start pulling out some of these crazy ideas and deployment and, and whatnot. But uh, I think Invade's a very straightforward scenario of standard deployments are most commonly the best option. Um, and understand what your army can do and how it's going to best fight. And uh, Invade is really about fighting. It's less about trying to get sneaky and go around. There are some armies and some situations that that happens. And I know Keith's probably rolling his eyes over there because his army is definitely one of those exceptions to that rule. Uh, but if you're playing, uh, you know, more of an infantry style army, you're just going to have to uh, accept that it's going to get in combat and, just set up to where you're going to be in the advantage for that combat, whatever it might be with the terrain, uh, with your units. Uh, just understand how your army works best. That's fair. If I can make you fight in the box of death, the box of death works. And if you make your opponent have to spread out and deploy and split up that box of death on each flank, that's to your advantage too. Remember, time is a commodity. So even if you just default to deploying as you normally would, those minutes that you save in that deployment phase will benefit you later when you have to do that mental math at the end to make sure that you are indeed winning the scenario. Well, next up, let's jump into number nine, another classic, another favorite scenario, plunder. Before rolling off the two sides, place five loot counters on the center line of the board. One must be played in the exact center of the board or as close to it along the center line as possible. The remaining four counters are then placed along the center line, 12 inches away from each other, or as close to this as distance as possible. After choosing sides, starting with the player that chooses their side first, each player nominates a different loot token, which will be worth two victory points. These two victory point, these two counters are referred to as primary loot counters. Victory points are awarded at the end of the game as follows. One victory point for each loot counter you hold, two victory points for each primary loot counter you hold. All right, guys, let's talk plunder. So I love and I hate this scenario. Um, I hate this scenario because it's the biggest culprit for the ships in the night, the toilet bowl, right? More so than the other scenarios. You'll find, okay, I'm going to nominate one on this side and the other one on this flank, and then that's it, right? And then you fight for the middle. Um, and that happens in a lot of games. What I really like about this scenario is that in the game design perspective, Mantic gave an advantage to the person who didn't choose. Like, choosing table sides, right? Always an advantage, right? There's 
normally a good side and a bad side or something that's advantageous for your army. But in this role specifically, they balance it out and they give um, an advantage to the person who didn't choose uh, table sides. So even if they don't keep this scenario specifically into the next edition, I would love to see Mantic include more if-then examples to balance um, out the choosing of sides. Because unlike with going first, choosing table sides is just gravy, right? It's just good. You have an advantage. There's a hill in your deployment zone. There's a ton of terrain. Your opponent doesn't have Pathfinder. But in this example, so for newer players specifically, what I'm referring to is um, if your opponent chooses sides first um, and looking at the wording, they have to nominate their two-point token first. So that gives you the opportunity to react accordingly. So if your opponent has to nominate their token if you're playing a grind style list, like, cool, well, I'm going to go right next to you and here we're going to fight and you have to engage me because now four total points are along the center line. Um, conversely, if your opponent um, had to choose first, uh, they pick sides, you get to space yours out if you're playing like a, a more mobile list that wants to play the flanks, you know, examples such as that. So I really love that Mantic took this scenario and balanced it out a little bit. And if they did that for all the other ones and balanced out the advantage of choosing table sides, I think that would add an extra layer and more more fairness to the game. That does play into where you want to put your two. And it's not enough to, like, clearly you're always going to want to choose table sides first, but it does give a little extra bonus to the person who would then play second because, you know, other things such as terrain uh, may play a factor as well as where you would put yours after you get the survey of the board couple of archetypes, right? Uh, like Kyle said, if you have a grind list, um, the magic number here is four because you're going to have two victory points for each primary loot counter that you hold and then one victory point for each uh, loot counter that you hold. So the primary and the loot. So trying to get to that number of four gives you the win. So we talked earlier about you know wanting to play for the win first before pursuing the maximum. This is a really tempting one to try to get all of the tokens, right? Because you line up across, you're like, oh, I'll win this, I'll win that, I'll win that, I'll get all the tokens. Newer players especially always try to aim for four. Um, whether it's going to be to get one primary and two normal loot counters, um, so if your opponent is playing for the middle, if you can steal a primary loot counter and get the remaining ones, you can win. Um, if you're a grind list, right, try to deploy them as close to each other as possible so that you can get the most out of your heal, knowing that your opponent has to engage in combat, um, get your kill box set up, whatever it is. Um, and then again, for shooting, right, anything that's in the open terrain or opposite an area, we have a hill in your deployment zone, or you have some good cover, or your opponent doesn't have cover. Um, you can use that to nominate your primary loot counter, right? Knowing that your opponent will have to get uh, to that side. If your opponent crushes you with one of those twos, so let's say that the only place that my opponent put his two is right in the open, and it's a giant gun line, right? You're playing Jeff O'Neill's catapults. You can get to four the hard way with a two-point token and two ones. Like, don't force the sacrifice to try and win the two, um, especially if, let's say, me and Keith Conroy are both playing really alpha. Maybe we put our twos on opposite flanks. Well, don't You're not going to split your army to try and force for both twos. I'll win my two, you win your two, and then we fight for the 
the extra two points. So it's easier to get to four if you just win the twos. But sometimes your army or your matchup or where your opponent put their two makes you want to go, you know what, you can have that one. I'll take these two safe ones in the corner. And then we can fight for, do I get five points or do you get three points? So the, the twos are super important. Yeah, that advantage of being able to have that reactionary nomination after your opponent chooses table sides, they have to nominate their two point first. That does give you an advantage because you're right. Now you can decide, do I want to go for a two and two ones or do I want to go for two twos? Um, what's my game plan? And being able to have that reaction, which isn't on the clock, by the way, um, is something that can be really beneficial um, and to help out with time and clock management. Um, but most often you'll see this is played, you know, like you said, like people will stack a flank and then fight, fight for the middle. I've just seen people lose going for just the twos. Sure. Yeah. Um, and it's riskier too, right? Um, as opposed to holding multiple loot counters, if you have a two point um, and you're only holding two greater risk, but greater reward, right? Uh, if you're, God forbid, um, getting lightning bolt off uh, turn five or six, and you're dropping those tokens. Um, that goes from just dropping a one point and going from maybe a win to a draw to a minor loss to a major loss and having no points at all. So when you think about your strategy, think about your risk tolerance. Um, if you drop those tokens, right? If you're going to play for the two twos, know that if you have them on the same unit and you're in a situation which... All too happens happens uh, to me in the styles of list that I like to play, but it's the holding on by a thread. Enemies are coming in. You have like three units left. You're trying to figure out if you can use your druid as a way to block up an enemy unit by like positioning it. Um, you know, throwing everything that you have. Um, but can you risk a, a major loss if you do drop those tokens? Because dice spikes happen, and especially if you're a knight st stalkers player that hasn't brought the uh, portal of despair and you know tens elevens twelves will happen and sometimes that will be a big deal um, especially if you have tokens unprotected on a back line or you're running away away from your own inspiring so just things to be careful of because it, it may seem tempting to just go for the two twos because it's less to juggle in your mind but dropping those tokens would lead to greater loss versus um hedging your bets, so to speak, by getting some of the smaller point ones. And this, again, is uh, just like loot that we talked earlier, where turn two, I think, has a much bigger advantage. Uh, and with this scenario, being as there's five tokens in multiple different ways to get to that winning number versus loot, there's less of a punish if you don't get first turn and if your opponent's able to jump out there and grab some important tokens right away. Um, you still have time to recover. There are still tokens that you can pick up. Uh, and if your shooting is able to take out their units carrying the more expensive tokens on the bottom of the last turn, that likely puts you in the winning side of things. Be careful about getting greedy because this scenario specifically out of all the ones that we've covered, it's really easy to get greedy. It's like I have both two point tokens. They're in the bag. All right, I'm going to try to go for a major win. I'm going to drop them off to this troop of gargoyles or to this uh, regiment of scarecrows, you know, and then I'm going to move my combat force over and I'm going to try to grab some extra. But, oh, Mind Screech just popped out or a regiment of silver breeze spiked a roll. Now I've dropped my tokens and now I've went from what was a comfortable win to a major loss. Um, 
So always try to go for the win first before you go for even more points um, because crazy things do happen at the end of the game. Um, so secure the win first, whether that is um, by having a second unit um, that could pick up the tokens in the event of something like that hap- crazy happening like that, um, or making sure that they're on a, even if it is giving up one of your best hammers, um, that they're on a safe, secure unit that won't get um, dice spiked at the end of the game and drop tokens. Because there's no worse feeling than going from that major win to a loss because they uh, spiked a dice on a shooting roll. Another mission that supports the idea of a balanced army, right? If you don't have a shooting threat, your opponent can put all the tokens on a gargoyle, tuck it in a corner, and then commit those hammer resources right back into the fight where you don't have an option to threaten it. So skew, skew struggles at some mission somewhere. A skewed list will always struggle. So even Lightning Bolt 3 is enough to threaten a gargoyle troop. But if you don't have it, you're at a huge disadvantage. Yeah, not having shooting um, definitely does make this a, um, a more of an uphill battle to try to get those uh, late game points. Um, having flyers, nimble units... Um, Dwarf Lords on Large Beasts, um, Thanes and Lords on Frost Fangs. Um, if you can get your opponent to drop off tokens and put them in areas where you think that they're safe early on, and then you can circle around to try to grab them with these units, um, something to watch out for um, and to be careful of because nothing's really safe until the game is over. Um, so making sure that you're securing the win first before you go for extras even if it does mean giving up some of your uh, primary threats. That's a good point, Keith. I do think of all the movement missions we've talked about, plunder is the one that favors the armies or that punishes the armies the least that are bad or movement missions, right? So we talk about dwarves or surge heavy armies, etc. Because you get to sort of pick where you fight and it's not as much about I'm across the board. Um, Similar way to loot, but loot with more tokens, right? We talked about loot. You lose if your opponent can go too fast and you can't answer. So if if you're going to play a super slow defense army and a movement mission is going to be on the table, plunder is probably your most preferable one. Like if you ask a dwarf player, do you want to play loot, plunder, or invade? You have to pick one. They're all going to point at plunder. There's hope out there. Don't worry. Well, in my opinion, it's just the best of the loot counter scenarios. Um, it, you know, push has its downsides. Uh, loot, with only being three tokens, it it just feels bad in certain uh, situations. I think plunder is the most balanced and fair um, when it comes to all types of lists and all types of armies that we see. Um, it, there's just a lot of good competitive games that come out of this scenario. I feel. Loot is the pillage of movement. Got it. That's a quote directly from Adam, everyone. Direct quote. Didn't I say plunder is? What did I say? Yeah, you said plunder. I said loot. I don't work good, dude. Look, I'm painting 94 goblins tonight, all right? I just finished my bourbon in honor of Keith Randall. So that made sense to me, and I had to work it out in my head. (laughs) I was like, oh, wait, no. Let's talk about plunder. Keith will be in every countercharge episode until Rob kicks me out. So, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm so bummed I can't make it this year. 
Ah, I love Masters. It is going to be a good time. Miss you guys. You know what's interesting is we historically have done episodes like with new players, like, hey, this is your first Masters. And usually those are players that are filling in that maybe not to the level of the players they're filling in for. That's not the case this year. Uh, the people that are showing up to fill those spots that haven't been to the Masters before, they're tournament winners. Like they're they're legit good. Yeah, there's some so good it's ones. it's a we- it's a weird dynamic, and I'm really excited to see how it plays out. There, there's definitely still some fill-ins, I would say, but um, we could call we could call Travis a fill-in. That's fine. <laughs> too many babies in the Northeast. I had to shake up our Masters team a little bit. Uh, it's a good thing too, right? Yeah. Uh, it's good every once in a while just shake it up, get some new blood in there, and try some new things out. Final thoughts. Just understand the limitations, the rules, how the tokens work, and when, what you can do and when. That, that I think, is one of the biggest things, especially if you're a newer player, um, that can help you win games or at least compete in games that, uh, that involve loot tokens. Make sure you know if it's majority or entirety. More things that have lost me games. Yeah, you need to be majority over or entirely over, and then you don't plan your movement, and all of a sudden, like six unit strength don't score, and your opponent wins, and you feel bad. Uh, remember that you can play these scenarios uh, defensively. Remember that there are ways to block out and prevent your opponent from getting points, and in that way, you can win. Specifically with these ones, keep a good cushion of time on your clock so that turns four through six plans aren't going. <laughs> According to plan, you can readjust and that you're giving yourself that time. So it's not that last minute panic um, to count the points, make sure that everything's where it needs to be and that everything is over the line um, or carrying the appropriate amount. Awesome, guys. Uh, Again, this is going to be a cracking episode. I'm sure a lot of people are going to really enjoy it. It's always fun to take a deep dive into this. You know, I would argue this kind of this discussion, this kind of things you can learn from the show is the kind of things that make you go from mid table to top table. Right. These are the these are the little things that win and lose those games at those top tables. The details matter. Just give a uh, shout out to the Northeast team. Go Northeast. For those who are looking for a good GT in uh, September, uh, check out the Crossroads GT um, in Horseheads, Elmira, New York team tournament. Corey Reynolds runs it. It's an awesome time. Um, and then my own club's uh, GT, um, the Unplugged GT, in April 2024 in Massachusetts. I'll be at Crossroads. Woo! Go at them. Uh, that'll do it for us tonight. Keep countercharging. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time on Countercharge. Please let us know what you thought of the show by emailing us at counterchargepodcast at gmail.com, on Twitter at countercharge15. Or by commenting on the Countercharge Kings of War podcast Facebook group. If you enjoy the show, you can help others find out about it by leaving positive reviews on iTunes. Until next time, keep countercharging. Music is a composition of Kevin McLeod and is licensed under Creative Commons.